good morning. We're so glad that you're joining us here today, whether at Ajax or Bowmanville or Port Perry or Pickering or somewhere online. Welcome. And this is the last in this incredible uh, series out of the book of Galatians. So now for the last time, let me do the mini review one last time. It's been 16, maybe 20 years since Jesus was executed and rose from the dead. Christians, Christian communities are growing across the Roman Empire unexpectedly. Paul, who used to be one of our enemies, has now become one of our chief thinkers and spokespeople. He begins to plant some of the first multi-ethnic churches in history in now what we call Turkey. And as he leaves to plant churches in other parts of the Roman Empire, a crisis begins in the churches he has planted. In this letter, as we've discovered, is written to a group of churches that were being tempted to turn to a false gospel and a walk away from the true gospel that found them in the first place. Now, we found out that these false teachers were called Judaizers, and one best summarized their view this way. Not all Jewish people are Christian, but all Christians now must become fully Jewish. I was in Israel two weeks ago, hanging out with some friends of mine and actually my daughter, and at one moment, we had the great privilege of going to the Wailing Wall, which is the epicenter of the religious Jewish faith globally. My daughter and I, of course, couldn't pray together because men and women separate in prayer. And, and so my daughter went with one group and I went with another. And, of course, they allow anyone on earth to pray there because they believe, of course, that God's house is a house of prayer for all nations. And so I went among all these beautiful, thoughtful Jewish uh, men who were singing the same songs and psalms we sing, crying out of the Old Testament. And I put my hands on the wailing wall in my head and I prayed out of Romans 10. Because the one distinguishing factor between myself and them was not that, that I am more sincere or they, but they were praying that the Messiah would come. And I took a moment and I said, Jesus, you've already come. Open their eyes so they can see who Jesus is. And he's already come. But in that moment, I grabbed some people who were from this church and I took them back from the wailing wall and I said, do you see this? And they said, yeah, this is overwhelming. I said, no, no, no. Galatians should be coming so much more to life to you now. Because as we were surrounded by men singing the psalms and in prayer shawls and had the box on their head and their, on their arm, I said, do you see that the Judaizers were teaching Jesus wasn't enough? You had to accept Jesus and become what's in front of us, and then you got saved. But Paul, a world-class Orthodox rabbi himself who encountered Jesus, what did he teach to these very first Christians who weren't even Jewish? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus' work alone, grace alone, faith alone. The false teachers taught all the right things about Jesus. Son of God, divine, fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He really died, really rose from the dead. Yes, but not enough. Jesus plus circumcision and Jesus plus Sabbath keeping and Jesus plus eating kosher. The battle was always between promise or performance. And the false teachers were saying to this young Christian group of communities, promise is not enough. It's promise plus performance. And God will only love you and sing to you and forgive you and care for you and call you a child and treat you like a child after you prove yourself. Performance, they taught, was the only way to be loved. But Paul said, no, it's never based on our performance. It's based on the performance of Jesus who became our promise. Galatians 3, 5. So again, I ask, he says, does God give you his Holy Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing on what you have heard? So it was also with Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We've heard this week in and week out. Abraham was called righteous, okay with God, in relationship with the holy God 
before he became fully Jewish. Actually, the very first Jewish person on earth, Abraham, was made, by, made right by the one true living God. Not because Abram was looking for God, but God went looking for Abram and chose him. Abraham was called righteous 10 years before God instituted the symbol of circumcision. And Abraham was called righteous 400 plus years before Moses was even given the Ten Commandments. And God declares Abraham righteous because he believes God's promise. And Paul says, so the same with you. When you trusted in God's ultimate promise, Jesus, you were made righteous through Jesus's performance. And even better, he does not leave us alone, but he gives us the spirit of his son, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit. And as we've walked through this book, the ultimate sort of summary comes in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that the Messiah, Christ, has set us free. Stand firm then as a Christian and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now the implication here is those that truly know God through Jesus can become slaves again. And if you reap this, you will sow this. Freedom leads to more freedom. Slavery leads to more bondage. And as we've seen in Galatians, there are two slaveries, two forms of slavery that tempt Christians in every generation. The first is trusting in religion, always connected not just to personal performance. Actually, it's about perfectionism. Some of you as Christians are afraid you're going to hell because you've not kept God's law perfectly. Well, you never will. Be free. Jesus has done that for you. Some of you think that you don't deserve to be loved by God because you're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect, but Jesus has covered you. You don't need to go back to perfectionism. You have been set free. But the second form of slavery, which has a deeper grip in this church, is not legalism. It's licentiousness, living like hell, though you think you're going to heaven. And we saw Pastor Joel do this last week in Galatians 5.19. The acts of the sinful nature or the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality and impurity and in debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and dissension and faction and envy and drunkenness and orgies and the like. As I have warned you, those that live like this, put their identity in this, don't think this is wrong. They will not have eternal life. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So then the last question must be as we end this series. What does this ongoing freedom, if we've really got it, look like? What does a church community look like when it's walking in freedom, marked by the true gospel of Jesus Christ and filled and swimming and overwhelmed by the presence of the Spirit of God? How does everything we've learned this whole fall affect your relationship with people inside the church, outside the church, between you and God, and even yourself well, Paul now gives very practical advice to show what an everyday experience in a local church looks like when the Holy Spirit is on the move and freedom is being embraced. But actually what he outlines is what most of us would never consider as the marks of the Spirit or freedom. Galatians 6.1. Hey, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Holy Spirit should restore that person, what's that word? Gently. Oh, but watch yourselves or you also might be tempted. So the very first thing that Paul says is, look at this letter I've just written. Look at the churches. You've become spiritually impotent, unable to produce life, powerless, broken, because so many of you have been caught up in the sin of legalism and or licentiousness or both at the same time. We must be free to call each other out so we can continue to be what? Free. So let me ask you a question. In your walk, 
and in this church? Do you see people around you adding to Jesus' work? Do you see perfectionism or self-hate or fear-based living infecting another Christian's life or yours? Do you see Christians acting out sexually and the Bible is just clear about it? Do you see another Christian starting to mix the Christian faith with other spiritual thinking? Are you watching people in our own church steal and you know about it? Whether it's actually stealing money or actually stealing a person's reputation, whether a politician or someone else online? Do you know others that have not obeyed Jesus in this church about baptism, giving, serving, or even just making their own personal walk with Jesus priority? Well, then you are called to go. You who are trying to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, you're not more spiritual than them. You're just keeping in step. Go and confront them. Here's the key word, gently, quietly, lovingly, softly, mercifully. When most Christians go to confront others, they're like, I want to do this in love. No. No. Gently. And here's another thing that's so important. When you go to restore a brother and sister, don't give them your opinion. It doesn't go well. Take this with you. Show them the scriptures. Remind them of the love of Jesus that they already know. Remind them of the lordship of Jesus. Remind them if they're a real Christian, they're a slave to Jesus and they have given up all rights. He is Lord. They are not Lord, but his lordship brings life and kindness. And don't just say, well, I know you're having a bad day or it's sort of bad or I know your family narrative or I know, no, no, no. Call it what it is. It is called sin. It is breaking God's law. It is breaking God's way. The scriptures are clear. All sin is an affront to God and an assault on his personal nature. I love when one wrote, Christians need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. Now, why do this? So you feel better about yourself? No, 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 no. Do this to what? Restore them. Now, the image that's used here in the original language actually is going to give us some insight. The word restore comes from the idea of putting a bone back into place that has become dislocated. Raise your hand if you've ever had a dislocated bone before. Raise your hand. Okay. How did it feel when they put it back in? Wonderful, beautiful experience? Mm, No. Ah, terrible. But when the dislocation is put back in its place, what happens? There is healing. And so your expectation should be when the Spirit of God is moving in Sanctus Church and you go to gently confront someone else, there's going to be a little bit of yelling before there's going to be freedom. Here's another thing. Paul gives incredible, Spirit-given wisdom, command, and advice. This is a verse I actually quote to all young pastors as they're preparing for ministry. He says, oh, by the way, when you go do this, remember you're human, you're flawed, you're tempted. You have just as much temptation as the person you're going to try to help. So when you go to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, be so careful because you could be tempted. When you're hearing the confession of sin, you might feel drawn into that very thing you're trying to help someone from. If you get excited or turned on by or drawn into, guard yourself. Confession brings healing, but, but can become the place of slavery for you. Now, Paul has been doing this, <coughs> this whole letter. He's been attacking and undoing and confronting one sin. It's actually the unholy mother of all other sins. It's pride. See, you will know if you're walking in the spirit, if you're not, in how you go confront someone. You'll never, ever look your nose down on someone if you actually have experienced grace. But if you have not, you will not restore them gently. You will think you're better than them and you're going to tell them off. You will become like a Judaizer or a Pharisee even though you think you're doing God's work. It's like what the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18. Oh God, 
Thank you, I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, even this tax collector. No, no. Any of us that have truly encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and know all of his holiness, any one of us that have looked at the Ten Commandments and know what sin is and how far every single one of us has fallen, we could never in word or deed or thought, I am so much better than you. Our starting point and our end point is this. There is no unrighteous, not even one. And yet we go confront because we want to preserve the freedom that God has given us. So what does it look like for those who have truly encountered Jesus? Truly embraced the gospel of freedom? Truly have experienced the ongoing freedom of the Holy Spirit? Well, we're not just free to speak to each other, and we're not just free to restore each other. We also have been set free to continue to help each other. Here's one of the most practical, significant verses in all of Galatians. Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your what? Neighbor as yourself. Jesus is the greatest burden bearer of all time, and we are called to share the load of the Christian life together. We are called to laugh together, to cry together, confess our sins to each other, confront each other. We are called to mutually carry each other's loads. Life, job, sickness, death, divorce, abuse, addiction, sin, Satan, the best of times and the worst of times, we all know life is heavy. And Christians can never say, can never say, I can handle it by myself. Oh, can I just say that again in a very, very, very educated church that's got a lot going on? Can I just, you are never allowed to say as a Christian, I got this. You don't got this. You can't say, I can handle this. You can't handle this. Oh, let me figure it out. No, let us figure it out. You cannot have Jesus without his body. A Holy Spirit-saturated community walking in freedom does life with each other. You cannot carry someone's burden if you're not close to someone and not walking with someone. If you're not in their shoes, you won't be able to bear the burden in the first place. And that is why unashamedly in this church, one of the key five dimensions of discipleship we talk about to make you a fully devoted follower of Jesus is connecting small through Alpha, Freedom Sessions, or a connect group. We don't just do this because we're a large church. We do this because this is the command and the law of Christ. How do you know where someone else is spiritually if you don't know their story? How in the world can you walk with someone and be there when a tough thing happens if you're not an intentional community? The Bible is clear. We are called to bear each other's burdens together. So there is freedom to restore each other. There is freedom in to, bear each other, to bear each other's burdens and not move people away. But there is also a personal responsibility to guard the freedom that has already been given to us by God himself. Verse 3, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. There's a verse for our whole culture. Each one should test their own actions and then they can take pride in themselves alone without, ready, here's the great freedom moment, without comparing themselves to someone else. Do you think our culture needs to hear this? Do you think we need to hear this? For each one should carry their own load. Okay, John, what's the difference between load and burden? Well, burden is the things we share with each other, heavy, overwhelming, life-destroying, life-sucking, but load in Greek is your own personal backpack. The load that you've been given is your spiritual gifts. The loads you've been given are your natural and acquired gifts, your experiences, your life story, your struggles, your, your victories, your calling. This is your God-given personal assignment. I love what F.F. F. Bruce, the great New Testament scholar, wrote about this. Instead of boasting about how much better you are than other people or envying others for how much better they are than you, recognize that you are personally 
accountable before God, and don't worry about everyone else around you. You want to be free of pride? You want to be free of jealousy? You want to be free of being stupidly religious? Remember one thing, and one thing only, that Jesus is the only one that you're going to give an account to. See, a spirit-filled community where the spirit of God is really working is when people are falling over or having visions. It's when a church is living under the presence of what we call imminence, the belief that Jesus really is going to come back one day and judge all of us. And each Christian is going to be tested. Paul wrote this later in 1 Corinthians 3.12. If anyone, talking to Christians, builds on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stones or wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day judgment day will bring it all to light it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work now that phrase the day should bring fear among us right now at this moment and joy see we're celebrating christmas right now jesus's first coming this is talking about his second coming and when jesus comes back there will be no hiding no bargaining no excuses Listen to what Jesus said himself in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that people will give an account on Judgment Day, ready, for every careless word they have tweeted, Instagrammed, and spoken. Is anyone concerned yet? No, for real. Every careless word. Romans 2, 16, I tell you this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So let this sink in. When the sky split, when all sin is revealed, when the books are open, when all thoughts and motives are revealed, every action done by every person, every government, every corporation, every family, every enemy, every friend, it's brought, in, brought into the light, then it will be tested Oh, and don't think this is happening between you and 7.5 billion people. When you face Jesus, it's you and him alone. I've got my own appointment too. Now he says this in verse 14. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive what? A reward. All of our actions, even as Christians, this is not talking about salvation. This is testing our lives. We'll suffer loss. God's final fire is the testing ground. Historians tell us at this time, gold was, was, was put into fire and the impurities would burn out, but the gold would not be damaged. And God is going to do the same thing to you. Oh, and to me. And all the impurity is going to burn. All you do for Jesus will be rewarded, but all that you do, even in Jesus' name, that was not done for him and it was done out of fear or pride or jealousy, it's going to burn. So Paul says, you want to walk in the freedom of the Holy Spirit? You don't want to become like a Judaizer? Here it is. Your focus and your love should be, I'm going to do everything I can for Jesus himself, and I don't care what other people have or don't have or what there's going on. No, no. Jesus is my focus because in the end, I want to give him the best gift when I face him. Paul says, oh, there's more. You're like, really, there's more? Yeah, there's more. You'll know the Holy Spirit is moving. You'll know the implications of the free gospel are really touching down in a local church, that there's actual freedom in a local church, that the Holy Spirit is actually moving in a, in a local church when the rubber meets the road, when your money, uh-oh, when your money is given to the church. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. This is one of the strongest calls in the whole New Testament for churches to free up pastors and church leaders to be able to work full-time so we can mutually support each other. Now, I can't see you because of the lights, but I know, I don't even need the gift of discernment. You all just did this. Hmm. 
Because you're like, isn't that nice for you? Because you're the pastor up there preaching and you get the benefit of this. Well, first of all, I didn't say it. God's word said it. So have a talk with my boss before you talk to me. Second of all, this is a practical, non-negotiable example of grace, self-denial, and sacrifice. One of the best spiritual disciplines in a materialistic culture is to actually give your stuff away so you are not owned by those things. And some of you are like, well, isn't that nice? You're still the pastor. Well, let me just say this. My wife and I also give in this church, and we give above and beyond in this church because we understand, though I get the benefit of this, we, my wife and I, my family, want others to be free to do what they've been called to do, so we give above and beyond with you, maybe more than you, less than you, but we give because we are determined to bear each other's burdens together. And so catch this, one wrote this, lean in, you're not gonna like it. It's in the believer's long-term spiritual interest to provide financially for a local church. Do you believe that? You actually stand to benefit, he writes, immensely, immeasurably, eternally by sharing your financial resources, not with charities, with the local church. So the local church can be all the more active in sharing the word of God. This is for your own good. This is how we practically, mutually support each other. This is a way we carry each other's burdens. This is a way we demonstrate we actually believe that we are free and God is in control. Now, with all of that, Paul begins to bring this whole letter to a close. And what a closing it is. He says, oh, oh, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what they sow. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit, from the spirit they will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God cannot be evaded. God cannot be outwitted. God cannot be outsmarted. God cannot be conned. He actually knows what he's talking about. He says there are two lifestyles with two power sources. One is flesh, one is the spirit. Just like a farmer is going to tell you, you can't plant beans and get tomatoes. You don't plant pear trees and get oranges. If you plant sin, if you don't love Jesus more than your own sinful wants, if you actually don't crucify your passions, whether it's super religious attitudes or it's pride or it's stealing or it's lying or you're getting drunk or it's sexual sin, when we do these things, we will reap brokenness, death, destruction, and ineffective Christian life, a lack of joy, and destruction. And don't turn around and say, God, where are you when you're doing it? He's right there, but you're grieving him. But if we love Jesus and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we not only have eternal life, we'll have eternal reward. You reap what you sow. And this is an incredible promise. If you keep sowing and sowing and sowing in the Christian life, Jesus will give you reward. This is not just talking about finances at this moment. This is talking about obeying Jesus, loving the poor, using your spiritual gifts. Jesus says, even when you feel like giving up, keep going. Because when I return, the reward I will give you will far outshine, will be so much emotionally better than anything you could do for five minutes in sin or 20 minutes that you could buy. Therefore, he says, if that's all true, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Oh, as Christians, we are called to love everyone, forgive, bless, be kind, forgiving at the forefront of helping and caring. And it's still true globally today, there is no movement on earth like the Christian church helping on every corner. But Paul is explicit, he is uncompromising, and he makes us feel uncomfortable, but he's under the spirit when he says this. The priority of your time and your talent and your treasure is to the local church. And why? 
Because this local church and all local churches, no matter their denominational brand, are not just institutions. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is really the head of this church and all churches. The only place where the Spirit of God dwells permanently on earth is in Christians that make up the gathered church. This organization, this institution is actually beyond that. This spiritual movement is the only thing that ripples into eternity, will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the only organization or movement that is transcended by death because the Spirit of God unites the body of Christ right now in heaven and on earth. And so we come to this place with the best of our time and the best of our money, not the leftovers, not after the mortgage payments, not after we've done, no, 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 we bring our best of everything we've got here because this is the place where Jesus is worshiped. This is the place where the Holy Spirit is present. This is where the hope of the world is found in this church and many others. So Paul says, look, if that's true, you know you're walking in freedom. If you're resisting what I'm saying right now, you know you're not walking in freedom. And then he turns his sights one last time to the false teachers. He says, see what large letters I use to write with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be more Jewish, to be circumcised. But the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Oh, it's so interesting how false teachers always look so spiritual, always out to help you, always to get you closer to Jesus. But Paul calls them and says, you know what? They actually are teaching everything to you because they don't want to suffer for Jesus. They want to have their cake and eat it too. You see, if you get circumcised as a guy 2,000 years ago, then the Jewish community goes, well, I suppose you're sort of with us because there's no logical reason, so you're with us. And the Romans, though they thought circumcision was disgusting and stupid, they still believed that the Jewish faith under law was a formal religion. So if a non-Jewish male did that, then he had just become Jewish. In other words, you can take out both of your competitors, the Jewish faith and the Roman worldview, by doing this. And Paul says, oh, so you're not even willing to suffer for Jesus. Are you really free? Are you really free? He says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised so they might boast about circumcision in the flesh. You can never meet God or please God by being religious. You you can't keep the law perfectly and you want to go down the path that they can't even do themselves. Don't let the blind lead the blind. And then Paul writes one of the most powerful verses actually probably in the whole New Testament. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I haven't done anything. If anyone had the right to brag, it would be Paul. World-class scholar, multiple languages, probably two PhDs worth of education, and a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant Orthodox Jew. And he says, I have nothing. The world has lost its grip on me. The cross is all I can boast about because it's there and there only that I found freedom and forgiveness. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 1.18, this is for someone here today as I read this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is foolish, scandalous, stupid, idiotic, intellectually not viable, religiously backwards and wrong, and disgusting and offensive. Remember, the cross is an act of torture, but you see it, right? The Christian message offends in two directions. And if Paul is right, then all my good works as a religious person don't matter in the long run. And others say, well, this isn't logical or or rational or wise. And God comes along and says, of course. God's real work has nothing to do with beauty or being made popular or education or money or being good enough or spiritual enough or religious enough or tough enough. It never comes from down here. It's the opposite of the brilliance of the world in all of its forms. 
He keeps writing in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. The world can't through its thinking connect. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Jesus, the Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God. Oh, and he is the wisdom of God. Paul says in Galatians, you're already free. You've already embraced the work of Jesus. You don't need to become more anything He says in verse 15, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. You are the new creation. You are born again. You already are a child of God. And oh, don't miss it. Because this whole book, Paul has been arguing, who is a child of God? Who's truly Jewish in the religious sense? Who's a child of Abraham? Ethnic Jews anymore? No. Israel The people of God are those who trust in God's promise, the Messiah Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, his work alone, his claims alone, by faith alone, by the cross alone. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I'm out, I'm done. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So where do we end this really challenging series? Well, we end by a call for all of us that already are free, for all of us that already know how we got saved and we had nothing to do with it, to keep walking in freedom. So the question is, how do we at Sanctus Church, four locations, soon to be many more, how do we, Galatians 5.22, since we live by the Spirit, how do we keep in step with the Spirit? Well, a church that's looking for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is truly free. This is what Paul says to us. This is what God says to us. We are all free to help all of us keep our freedom. Do you need to go and confront another brother and sister in our church so they can be free? Are you literally seeing them do things and you're like, that is sin. It's it's not gray, it's black and white in this case. Well, then go, but when you do it, don't do it through messenger. Don't text them. Go to them gently, privately, And expect God to do a grand, amazing restoration work. Do it so they can keep the freedom Jesus paid for in the first place. Do you need to confront yourself? Here's another thing. We're all free to help each other. The gospel shows us our need. We all need help. And what an amazing thing which the Christian faith gives us. We don't need to hide anymore. Remember, Adam and Eve, the very first thing they did when they sinned is they hid. Well, let me tell you something. You don't need to hide anymore. And you don't just hide, you don't hide from just God himself. You don't hide from the church. How are you bearing with each other's burdens? Are you actually in a group with Christians, sharing your life and your struggles and your victories and and your defeats? Are you fearful Are you saying, oh my goodness, if I tell those people, they'll never let me back? No, 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 no. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Any sin can be confessed in this church. Forgiveness is given because we are all saved by grace. Are you too prideful? I don't need others. Yes, you do. If you don't think you need others, you violate the law of Christ. Let me say this again. It's not you and Jesus. It's Jesus and us. You cannot have Jesus without his body. You cannot have Jesus without his church. This is not a privatized deal. This is a community deal. How are you bearing each other's burdens? Where you bear people's burdens, there Jesus and his spirit are found. 
Here's the third thing. We are free to give to the local church. How's your giving to this local church? Is it joyful? Is it consistent? Is it willing? Oh, and here's the big one. Is it sacrificial? If you give, it doesn't matter the amount, and it doesn't cost you anything, it's not giving. It's not giving. If you're giving out of the leftovers, it's not giving. When I was in Israel two weeks ago, I was struck because I was actually at a 2,000-year-old olive press, and there was three different weights. And the guy was telling us that the three different weights did three different things. The first crushing of the olives was called, ready, the first fruits. And it was the best. And then there's the second weight that gave you the next and the third. And he said, always the first crushing, which was the best olive oil, was given to the temple because this was the first fruit. Are you giving your first fruits or are you giving after you've paid your mortgage and after you've paid for your kid's dance? See, God says, look, do you believe it is for your own benefit to give with joy? Are you really giving your best to Jesus through this local church? We're free to give, we're free to bear each other's burdens, we're free to restore each other, and we're free not to compare. Does anyone want to be free of comparison? Well, if you want to be free from pride and jealousy, and it feels so impossible, Instagram and social media has even trained us more to do this. Look, here's the answer. Remember, the only person you're going to give an account to is Jesus. Have you ever actually sat down with Jesus personally? And thought just about your life, your spiritual gifts, your journey, your money, your influence, your life, your kids, if you have them, or relationships, or job. And if you just said to Jesus, am I even doing this for you? What would you say to me if I died right now and I just had to face you? Maybe, do you need to repent of looking around and looking down at others and thinking you're so much better or more spiritual? Or do you need to repent and be free of actually being jealous and wanting that other family or those other kids or that other clothes? No, no, just remember, the only way to be free, the only way to walk in the spirit of freedom is actually remember that Jesus' gaze is the only one that matters in the end. You already are free. I am already free. We don't need to go back to comparison, religiosity, jealousy, or pride. Not only that, You'll know that the Holy Spirit is working in a church. And it doesn't matter if it's Anglican or Baptist or Pentecostal or brethren, you fill in the blank. You will know that the gospel of Scripture is freedom. But if the gospel that you are believing or sharing does not offend culture and does not offend you personally and there's no backlash, it's actually not the gospel in the first place. Listen to what Paul said. The only reason they want to do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So many churches now in Canada actually in the West, are not even of the kingdom of God anymore. They, they don't teach Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's only one way to heaven. Jesus is just a moral example. He's just a nice guy. Oh, sin is not sin. We're, we're more educated now. It's 2019. The Bible got it wrong. We've got it wrong. No, 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 no. The gospel that brings freedom offends and wounds before it heals. As one person wrote, we know the gospel is unattractive and intimidating and repulsive to the natural unsaved person and to the ungodly spiritual system that dominates our world. The gospel to all of us exposes our sin and our wickedness and our depravity and our lostness and it declares pride to be despicable and works of righteousness, being nice and religious to be, ready, worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works, by church, by ritual, or any other human means. 
Paul says the gospel flies in the face of everything a culture believes, but he does it not because he's arrogant and he doesn't do it because he hates us. He shows us our brokenness for our own good because that is where Jesus shines because his beauty is so incredible when you realize how lost you are. You'll never ask for help unless you need help. And by the way, let me just say this as we end the series. As we've been going week in and week out through Galatians, when is the last time you just said, whether you're an emotive person or not, just thank you, Jesus, that you decided by your performance to set me free so I could just embrace a promise so I don't need to perform for God the Father. When's the last time you just said, thank you so much that you've loved me. Thank you so much I'm set free. Actually, just thank you that I don't need to prove myself. That is the heartbeat of Galatians. I'd be remiss if I didn't end this whole series this way. So many of you who come to our community are not Christians or you are seeking people, you're from another faith, you're spiritual, you have labels, some of you don't. But you come in because you're really seeking and, and it would be wrong if I did not one last time present the same gospel that Paul presented 2,000 years ago to these people. And the best verse that summarizes it all is in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person, no matter who that person is, is not justified, that is not made right by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You will never be made right by religion in any form. You'll never be made right. You'll never connect to God through spirituality, by the way. You'll never connect to the true living God through being mindful or through yoga or even just through exercise or by travel or self-discovery or the universe or fate or money or a good job or hard work or education or being kind or being nice. You'll never get in God's good books by giving to the United Way, though that's good. You'll never get in God's good books or connect with him personally through public service or spiritual power or political power or having money or coming from a good family or coming from a terrible family and you've worked so hard that you've reversed that. None of that will, listen, here it is. You will never encounter the love of God through performance. It's always through promise. It's always through promise. And the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity is that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Jesus is the answer for every human heart. And when you embrace his work and his claims and his will in your life and he covers you, you get set free and you get loved. That's thousands of us in this church are not Christians because we are better or more moral or more religious. We have discovered through God's help that we were sinners and we needed to be saved by grace and Jesus became our brother and saved us. Anyone want to say amen, by the way, to that? So this is just, this is the beauty of this. So if you have never embraced Jesus ever, whether you're watching online in another country or you've done church your whole life, just pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me for being religious, but not connected. Or forgive me for licentiousness, living and doing all this stuff, self-made or all this, se- no, no, none of that. I repent of all of that and I embrace Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ask him to make me clean and free. I want to know his father as dad and I want the spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come into my life. I need salvation. I need rescue. And I ask this now. And for the rest of us who know the good news of Jesus, we are followers of Jesus, here's what we pray at this moment. We've prayed this for years and we keep praying it. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit into this church. More of the Holy Spirit. More of the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. More of your presence. 
freedom is what we're praying for. Uh, freedom to uh, confront each other to see us be free. I pray, Lord, as, as literal conversations start happening across our church, they would be marked by gentleness and humility. Uh, we pray for our, our burden-bearing to get better in this church, not worse. Forgive us some of us for being prideful and saying, I don't need you, or being afraid to be open. Lord, we pray for burden-bearing to grow in this church. Uh, we, we pray for our personal responsibility that every person, Holy Spirit, give every Christian in this church the ability to know we're going to be judged by Jesus and that's a good thing and to be free of pride and free of jealousy. Set people free of these two things now in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Right now we ask. Lord, we pray our giving would exponentially grow in this church because we are joyfully willing to sacrifice. May materialism lose its power in this church. May jealousy and resistance to giving be broken in this church. And may we see an incredible moment of generosity. And Lord, we continue to pray that thousands of others through this church and other churches in our country would found the good news of Jesus. We pray this in the name of God the Father who called us, the Son who died and rose, and in the name of the Holy Spirit who gives us freedom in Jesus. And we all said together, amen. We thought it would be best to end this series with communion because it's the great symbol of our what? Freedom. So Jesus, just before he was executed, went to this place called the upper room and he just took some bread and he broke it. He said, my body broken for you during the Passover meal, took one of the cups of wine and says, a new covenant, a new agreement. My blood's going to be shed. So you don't need to perform anymore, actually. It's going to be me. So if you are a follower of Jesus then you're welcome to remember the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You are, when you take this, to remind yourself that you are forgiven. You are supposed to confess sin at this moment. We are. You are to remind yourself that one day you're going to eat face-to-face with Jesus. Isn't that going to be great? We're never going to take communion again. When we do this, you're going to remember the global church. Hundreds of millions of people have taken communion already today and that you're united with them. The only thing that prevents you from taking communion is two things. If you're a Christian and you refuse to repent, not struggle, repent of a sin, don't take it because you're resisting the lordship of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian yet, then you don't take this until you say yes to him. It's a great place to meet him, like we say all the time. As the ushers pass it today, just one last thought. Never forget that as these elements are passed and you take them when you're ready, it's not ushers passing this to you. Jesus is going to walk up and down these aisles and serve this to you. Because God's mercies are new, what? Every morning. And Jesus loves eating with what? Sinners. So, Father and Son, by your Spirit's presence, bring the presence of Jesus. Meet us as we walk, as we listen, as we pray, as we sing in this communion moment. Thanks that this is a guaranteed place of encounter. Amen. (laughs) 